Then uh, we're changing things up a little bit today. As you can see, I am back in our church building. It's still standing, yay. Uh, but I deliberately am wanting to present this message to you in front of this wall. Um, this scripture, which is arguably the most important summary of what it means to have a relationship with God, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, because I feel very strongly that we need to talk about racism, prejudice, and power. Unless uh, you've been in a media blackout over the last several weeks, um, you'll see that uh, really all around the world, in many of the major cities, and certainly many in South Africa are affected by some of the events that took place a few weeks ago in America. And we know it's not because of that. We know that it's ultimately, uh, it, it kind of scratches open a wound that, that just never quite gets healed. And we know that in South Africa, we have um, an incredibly challenging past, but we also know that it's not just in the past. Um, there are still many uh, challenges. There are still many knock-on effects. Um, and even though I don't believe in generational curses in the sense of having something that's, that's over you that you have no control over, I do believe in generational consequences. And I think that we would be naive and foolish to put our heads in the sand and think that there are not still people that are suffering and struggling, in some cases because of the after effects of a system that didn't work for them. Um, but most importantly, I believe it's because of a heart attitude that all of us, have the capacity to struggle with. I think that prejudice is something that we, that we would all be guilty of. I think prejudice, uh, prejudice is something that we can uh, exercise towards anybody that is different to us. So whenever we don't fully know or understand somebody, we tend to prejudge them. And I think that it's hard for those of us that have positions of power or influence, it's hard sometimes to steward that well and to see our responsibility in loving and serving others. So just to fill you in real quick, after our morning services today, we're going to be having a conversation with a few couples um, that can speak from very different places uh, and experiences over the last several decades. Um, I'd love for you to tune in at 11.30. Again, it'll be on this platform. Uh, and if you're watching this, at our 6 p.m. service on Facebook Live, stay behind on Facebook Live at 7 p.m. I'm going to be trying to host a conversation with a bunch of our younger people. I'd love to, I'd love to get into conversation with, with some of our teens and, and young adults and what they're experiencing and where they are still or, have, or are not still experiencing some of the effects from their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents' generation. So, so nobody has all the answers. I certainly don't. I can't fill your cup up, but I can try and empty mine. And that's all I want to do today is I just want to try and uh, maybe express just very briefly, and I've got so much more to share than what I have time for, but very briefly, just to, just to try and, and, and explain some of the challenges uh, to my own paradigms, to my own heart, uh, when I've needed to, to work through white guilt, uh, when I've needed to work through, um, should I be ashamed of my past advantages and present advantages? Should I be ashamed of the color of my skin? You know, these are things that I think you know, people deal with, and yet, and yet, without being defensive, I've got to check my heart. Um, and not just check my heart towards, towards someone of a different race, but, but people that have come from a different background, or sometimes someone that has a different accent because English is not their first language. I think that all of us need to reflect, all of us 
need to have humble hearts where we stop being so defensive and where we're not just aggressive, but where we are willing to listen and to learn. And so I would love for you to tune in at 11.30 and or 12.30. So for that reason, by the way, if you're joining us for part two of Growth Track today, we're going to move that back a little bit to 12.30. Normally it'll start at 12 midday, but today that's going to start at 12.30 just to give you an opportunity to tune in at 11.30. This uh, scripture that we have on our church wall, very deliberately, um, is number one because it, it is Jesus speaking and, and it's him summarizing the great commandment. It's him summarizing what it means ultimately to love God, what it means to, to be a Christian, what it means to find eternal life. But I want to give you some context real quick. In the book of Luke, chapter 10, verse 25, it says that one day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? That's a great question. And I want to suggest that Jesus offered a significant answer. Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do, how do you read it? So, so he's putting the question back onto the man. The man then answers, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Basically he's saying, well, the law of Moses says you've got to love God, and you've got to love people as you love yourself. And I love how Jesus says, you're right. <laughs> do this. And you will live. By the way, that's how simple it is. Sometimes we overcomplicate our walk with God, following Jesus, what it means to be a Christian. Jesus is like, you're right, just do this. If you can love God and love people, you sort it. But I want to also suggest that there's nothing harder in the natural to fully love God and to fully love people. I want you to pay attention to what it says in verse 29, because I think that this represents many of us, if not all of us, at some point or another. The man wanted to justify his actions. I don't know about you, but there are times in my life where I am capable of wanting to justify. Okay, so that's what it means. Okay, okay God, I, I need to love you. Sure, I need to love people, but, but, but what about this stuff? And, and I want to justify how I treat some people and how I treat others. Or, or maybe I've been a Christian long enough to know that you can't treat people differently on the outside, but, but, but is it okay to feel differently towards some people or to think differently about other people, people that are different to me? He wanted to justify his actions. So he asks, who is my neighbor? And that's what this conversation is all about. Who is my neighbor? God, I think, is so wise. He's, he's so powerful in, in the way that he, that he answers this question. Jesus goes on to then actually tell a very well-known story. You will have heard this story. Um, if not from the Bible, then you will have heard the reference to, to the world often uses the metaphor of the Good Samaritan. But it's actually found in this story in this book of Luke, in this context of how do we love God and love people? So who are the people I need to love? Who is my neighbor? So Jesus replies with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho and was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. 
It's important that you know that this was a Jewish man. Because then it goes on to say that a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. Then verse 32 says a temple assistant, or otherwise in some versions it says a Levite. So, so that would be similar to, to maybe other church staff or, or volunteers. So, so it's people that are involved in ministry, so practically ministering, serving. Uh, he walked over and looked at him lying there. So he, he actually looked at him, although I would argue he didn't see him, and he also passed by on the other side. And there might be some reasons for that. People might have heard different arguments. For that. That's not the point. I think we need to stick to what the point of the story is. Then verse 33, a despised Samaritan. Now this is important because Jews hated Samaritans. They were, they were outcasts. Jesus was making an incredibly powerful pointer. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, it's amazing to me how sometimes when we consider someone to be different, we keep our distance, and we don't see them as a person, and we start to dehumanize one another. And by the way, you can only really truly dehumanize or continue dehumanizing someone if you keep distance, even though you might be physically, and we've seen people in, in, in horrible confrontations, and I'm not just talking about a physical proximity. I mean, where you get to, to know a person, where you get to understand the, a little bit of their story. You'll never know their full story. You'll never know why people think and behave the way they do fully, because there's no way for you to fully live their lives. But we need to see people. We need to see them as human beings made in the image of God, they are valuable. You have never locked eyes with someone that does not matter to God. He saw the man and he felt compassion. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds. And I'm just saying, there's no way for us to soothe some of the pain that some people are experiencing. There's no way for us to soothe some of the wounds that maybe you didn't inflict. Maybe you didn't cause a wound, but, but can we stop pouring salt into the wounds? Can we stop scratching that wound open? Can we stop being overly defensive, overly aggressive? I'm saying from whatever side of the, the conversation you are, whatever level of privilege you do or don't have, can we stop being defensive and aggressive? And can we try and see one another with compassion as human beings? And, and can we be engaged in trying to soothe the wounds of hurting generations. Then he put the man on his own donkey and he took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins telling him, take care of this man. If his bull runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. I'm just saying sometimes, yes, it costs us. Sometimes I have to pay. I didn't, so in this case, the Samaritan didn't inflict harm on the man. But he was willing to pay a price. He, he was willing to be inconvenienced. I mean, he, he had to put this man onto his donkey. He had to, he had to make, a, make a plan. He had to use oil and other ointments to, to, to try and help soothe him and, and get him set up in an inn. He took responsibility for something that he did not cause, by the way. Jesus goes on in verse 36. Now, which of these three, would you say, was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Verse 37, the man replied, the one who showed mercy. 
Then Jesus said, yep, now go and do the same. If you are a Christian, if you are a part of our church, I am challenging you to check your heart. I'm challenging you on, on whatever side of this dilemma and whatever part of history you fall on and whatever your race, whatever your gender, whatever your nationality, whatever your age, whatever your level of privilege or education or power. I don't think it's me challenging you. I think that God is wanting to challenge us. Are we going to be people of love or are we just going to be people of volume, people of noise? Are we just going to, we just going to express ourselves and actually feed hatred? Are we, going to, are we going to just continue to fan the flame of hatred. And the, the irony is that we can pursue justice fueled by hatred or fueled by love. And I think that a hatred-fueled justice only reproduces further hatred. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul speaks so clearly where he says that you can do all kinds of amazing things. In fact, you can give everything you own to the poor. You can even have your you can even lay your life down for others if it's not motivated by love. It's nothing. It's meaningless, is what he's saying in verse 3. In verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 13, he's saying, if, if, if you know, if you can speak the languages of angels, if you, if you know all things, if you have the gift of prophecy, in other words, he's saying, you can be right technically. Technically, you can be right. But if it's not motivated by love, you are a noisy gong, a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. You are painful to listen to. You are noisy. You are loud. And I'm just asking, are we adding to the noise or are we bringing love to where we can have proper conversations without being defensive and without being aggressive and where we can seek to understand, where we can seek to soothe and to bring healing to so many places where there is still pain and heartache? Do we simply cross over and keep our distance from those who are different or do we see? Do we have compassion? Do we, do we move towards those who are different and do the best that we can to bring, to bring genuine, not, not sentimental soothing, but genuine, life-giving, spirit-filled soothing and at our own expense? Are we willing to be inconvenienced? That is what this passage is all about. That is what Christianity is about, that we love God and that we love people. You cannot love God and be loved by God and not ultimately love people more and allow people to love you more. You cannot allow the supernatural grace of God, the supernatural kindness of God, the, the compassion of God, the undeserved mercy of God to, to, to melt your heart and not be moved to love others. If we are going to call ourselves Christians, if we are going to call ourselves followers of Christ, we are going to, we are going to continue to surrender ourselves to Him, asking Him to change our hearts, because this is a heart issue long before it's a mental issue or even a behavioral issue. It's a heart issue. We're going to surrender that to God and ask Him to help us to see people the way that He sees people and to love people the way that He loves people. And again, I want to encourage you, don't be defensive. If you look like me, and if you grew up in South Africa at the same time that I grew up in South Africa, even though I was kind of probably part of the last generation, I was the last generation 
I guess, kind of that was coming out of apartheid. I was, I was 13 years old when Nelson Mandela was released from prison in 91. I was 17 years old during our 94 uh, elections. But I enjoyed incredible advantages. I can't be defensive about that. I did. In fact, today, in 2020, my family still enjoys certain advantages because of the advantages that I had systemically. I, I can't defend that. However, I don't believe that the answer is to, is, I don't believe that the answer is shame and white guilt. I do think that it's grief and gratitude. I, I have wrestled over a lot of guilt, probably throughout a good chunk of my adult life. I've often felt ashamed of, of our history and that, and that I got to benefit from that. And yet, all I can tell you, again, this is just my experience. I have sensed God telling me guilt is not the answer. Guilt's not going to produce life. Gratitude and responsibility, that's going to produce life. So I can grieve and you can grieve. And, and I, personally, I think I have. I think I have grieved a considerable amount of injustice, but I've I can never grieve at the level that people who have been the, the first-hand victims of injustice, I can't grieve at the level that they can, but I can lament and I can grieve and I can, and I can try and repent of, and I was changed direction of what, of what you know, history, the, the trajectory that history uh, was on for white people during apartheid. But I don't believe that, that guilt is going to produce fruit. I think, that, I think that appropriate grief and more importantly, appropriate gratitude and then stewardship and responsibility. And in case you haven't thought about this for a while, let me tell you that if English is your first language, you were probably at an advantage to people who had to try and help their children do homework for whom English was not their home language. If you had electricity at home, if, if you didn't have to do homework by the light of a candle, you were probably a little bit advantage. If you had indoor plumbing, if you, if you still today, if you have your own toilet in your own home, I'm just telling you that you are still probably to some extent more advantaged than a surprising number of people that are still living in South Africa in the year 20. 20. If right now during this lockdown you have access to enough data or Wi-Fi so that, so that your, your, the, the school that your kids are at can send you videos uh, to help them do homework or, or your kids can get onto a Zoom call, the fact that you're watching this today, there's probably a level of advantage. Again, the answer is not guilt. The answer is gratitude. I'm saying let's not be defensive about the fact that some of us have certain advantages that we can't necessarily explain and maybe feel bad about, but, but some of us have advantages over other people. I think something that's significant, I mean, probably more than anything else is education. And I'm just saying that I, I know that I have benefited from, from an education that was not necessarily equal to my peers or at least to the previous generation when we were growing up at the same time. If you, if you had both parents living at home, if, if your father or your mother didn't have to move 700 kilometers or 1,000 kilometers away just to go and earn a minimum wage to send it back home and you were being brought up by, by some other extended family member, then you were probably at some level of advantage, even if you had other challenges. If your parents, because of their own experience and opportunities in life had enough vision to help encourage you towards a tertiary education and towards a certain career that involves some kind of skill, then you are probably at an advantage to a lot of people for whom manual, unskilled labor was really the only option. And in most cases, at minimum wage. Again, please, I'm begging you 
don't, <laughs> don't be defensive. I'm asking you to be grateful and to be humble and to see where we have responsibility. I even think of Graham uh, Evans. Um, Graham and Jenny oversee our, our view churches. They're going to be in the conversation at 11.30. Graham, at the age of 67, I mean, I can't even tell you how many people they've had living at home with them over the last 25 years that I've known them. So, so these are two people who I think have modeled exceptionally well what it means to steward the opportunities and responsibilities that they've been blessed with. I've never not known them to have many people living with them. So even, to, even right now during lockdown, um, one of the boys that lives with him, Graham's helping do homework with a grade five every day of the week and trying to help cast a vision for him because his mother can't do that for him. These are some things that we need to be appreciative of, grateful for, and not be defensive over. I want to look at two very quick ideas. I'm talking about racism, prejudice, and power. The opposite of prejudice is to pause. The opposite of prejudice is to pause. When we are prejudiced, we are literally prejudging someone, thinking that we know enough about them as we assume a, a stereotype, as we assume that, that we know something about them because of an accent or because of the, 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 the tone of their skin or because of the country that we think they come from or because of their gender or because of their, their status in life, for good or bad. Prejudice, in, in so many cases, I think, is from the pit of hell. It, is, it, 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 it takes pride to be prejudiced, to assume that I know everything. And so my argument is that the opposite of prejudice, of prejudging, is to pause, to stop, to slow down, to listen, and to be willing to learn. Again, I can't comment about anyone else viewing this. I can only tell you that for me, to some extent, I lived in a bubble. It was, it was only... Um, in my very late teen years and early 20s that I started being exposed. I mentioned Graham and Jenny earlier, and, and again, there are few people that I can think of that have been more... Um, Jenny is one of the most intentional, generous, justice-oriented people that I've ever met. I remember Jenny driving me into Danoon more than 20 years ago uh, when it was mostly farmland as we went to a small little house to fetch a boy that had been at Highway Home, so she was a social worker at Highway Home, which was a home for street children. He was HIV positive, he was a bag of bones, and, and, and she was taking him to, I think it was to the clinic or the hospital, and, and I was with her, and I, just, and I just remember just this exposure to the, way, to the way that someone so sick was living. Jenny was probably the first person to take me to Kailicha, uh, to take me to Highway Home, to, to, to just begin to expose you know, my mind to... to to things that otherwise I'd only known about theoretically. I remember the f I've been on many missions trips, but I remember the first one I went on, again in my early 20s, to Mozambique. And um, we went into some rural areas. And, and again, it's, it's just amazing how when you draw close to someone and you recognize that we're exactly the same, we just, we're just born into two very different environments. I remember going, you know, getting back to South Africa, going home. I was living in a small flat at the time, but I just remember marveling. Like, I just, for, for a while, after I first got home, I would just look around the room and just marvel that everything was sealed, like, like there were no gaps between my wall and, and the corrugated iron or the thatch roof or whatever. I, I would marvel, and, and frankly, I probably wrestled, not probably, I did wrestle over a bit of guilt that I would have, I just had to walk a few meters to a tap, I had a toilet, I had warm water, I, I, it, was, it was winter, so I remember thinking, like, I'm, I'm warm, I'm secure. 
And these are just some of the examples of things that, that kind of, you know, broke me out of my bubble a little bit and, and broke me out of distance and prejudice. I remember many occasions going into people's homes in our community and in, and in the communities around us. I remember the first time going into the home of a family that's still in our church where at that time, five of them were living in a Wendy house that's three meters by six meters. Uh, no bathroom, no kitchen, no running water. Just, and just an amazing, remarkable family. All this mother cared about was, was her kids getting the best possible education. And I'm looking at a mother who, as far as I'm concerned, is a way better parent than, than maybe what I would ever be. Certainly more determined, willing to pay a price, had paid an enormous price. And I'm thinking, this, I, can't be pr I, can't, I can't think that what I have has been uh, generated or created by my own hands only. Yes, there's diligence and hard work and stewardship and, and all the rest and taking advantage of the opportunities that you're given. But I was given opportunities that this person wasn't given. And thank God I've seen him provide just miraculously from season to season and, and, and they've kind of, they've changed those circumstances dramatically. But I remember another lady in the noon uh, who again, b because of various circumstances, we got to know her really well. And and HIV positive, um, uh, very, very ill, very, very, very weak. But again, all she cared about was her son. And, you know, she, she was living in a shack at the time where when it rained, human feces from, from a, a nearby toilet would, would, would flow into, uh, into the shack. And, you know, I'm looking at this, I'm saying, he has a mother who is 100% devoted to her son. Her circumstances are, are genuinely no fault of her own. And I would just be so aware of how, you may argue over this word, but how unfair this was. And I'm just saying that these are things that have made it harder for me to just be prejudiced. I can still be prejudiced about all kinds of stuff. I'm not even going to tell you some of the things that I might struggle with. But, but I, I'm still capable of prejudice. But, but these are some experiences that have burst my bubble and that have challenged me to to bring humanity back into some of these examples that so often can just be numbers and stats and removed stories. I've, I've, had, to, I've had to open my mind to, to cultural uh, differences. Many of you know that our oldest daughter is originally from the Congo. She's engaged to an incredible young man who's also Congolese. His family is, is a traditional Congolese family. And so it is, it is part of their tradition. It's part of how they show value to, to the bride to pay labola, some kind of dowry. Now, I've got to tell you that for Sue and I, this, I mean, we would joke about it with her and we would tease about milking it and all the rest. But, but, but after a while, we started realizing that actually our joking and our teasing were starting to, to open up a wound. And, and we've had to humble ourselves. And, and I've had to try and talk to, to other black Christian friends that can help me understand something that, that I had a prejudice about. I assume that this is something that is, because I would hear so many stories, I'm being honest, I've just heard so many stories of abuse when it comes to this. And so again, I think I'm being just by pushing back, but actually I've, I've had to try and, I've had to not be prejudiced and I've had to not be proud and I've had to be willing to pause and to learn and to listen. One of my friends will be on the call at 11.30 today, I remember him speaking to a group of us, saying how, how other, so he's a black South African gentleman, how other friends would sometimes feel insecure about speaking in a conversation with people from other races because of feeling insecure about their accent. And 
that might not sound like a big deal to you, but that hit me hard when I just thought, well, there have been times in my life where I have judged someone based on their accent. There have been times in the early years where I would judge a politician because of his accent, not stopping to think that this is the man's third or fourth language. And so my ignorance has been revealed to me over and over again. We need to be willing to pause. We need to be willing to learn. We need to be willing to love. Pride opposes God, and God opposes pride. And prejudice is pride. Instead of being prejudiced, instead of being proud and thinking you know everything, instead of knowing that I don't know what I don't know, don't be prejudiced, don't be proud. I want to encourage you to pause. And then lastly, I think that the opposite of just seeing power as something to, to use and abuse, especially when you have agency over other people, I think we have to see this as responsibility. I try to find the source of this. Some argue that it's from Spider-Man or some other places, I don't know. But, but many of you know this quote that with great power comes great responsibility. And you know what, that's actually biblical. The Bible tells us that to whom much is given, much is required. With great power comes great responsibility. With little power still comes some responsibility. Maybe you have some little power on social media or in conversations with your friends. Well, I would argue then you have responsibility. Are you feeding the fire of hatred or are you feeding the fire of conversation, humility, learning, trying to help people understand? In fact, I was, I was on a Zoom call with, with, with a bunch of young people earlier today and, and the one was expressing frustration over, over wanting to educate people that are, that are not really wanting to learn. I just said, look, I don't know that it's your responsibility to inform and educate every person that doesn't want to hear. And the Bible actually talks about correcting or, or informing the wise and informing the ignorant. This is in Proverbs. It talks about how the wise will thank you, the ignorant will learn, but the fool will turn on you. So I would be careful about just how much energy you give to trying to convert the fool. If the person, I'm not calling anyone a fool, I'm just using biblical language. If the person doesn't want to learn. In fact, I think it could be Jesus who used this metaphor in, in one of the Gospels, certainly this is in the Gospels, cautioning people against casting pearl before swine because, because they would not recognize the value of what's being shared. And I'm just saying, don't, don't, don't spend all your energy trying to convert people that don't want to hear, that don't want to learn. With great power comes great responsibility. That could be in conversation. That could be standing up for someone that can't stand up for themselves. I've seen people, again, Jenny's one of them, who has, who has used her agency to fight to get children into school when their parents haven't been able to get them into school. If you have that kind of power influence, put it to good use. If you're at a management level or a leadership level in your business and you know that people are being exploited, well, use your power. You have a responsibility. I think that we have a responsibility if we are in a certain financial position to be generous. I am absolutely convinced that the, that the greatest solution to orphans and children in, uh, to, to those children that have been orphaned and to children that are in our foster care system should be Christian families. Now, I can't say that every Christian family has to do that, but I do think that there are many more. I know that Tammy and Reese are, are getting ready to adopt. Um, others in the church have done this already. This is something that we can do to, to take responsibility, 
to steward well some of the advantages that maybe we've been given. I think of a request that came through a week or two ago um, of, of, of a matric student that's needing some help with tutoring and how we've been able to partner him up with someone else in the church who, who matriculated last year. And he's able to tutor this boy. There are things that we can do. And this is a young guy who's, who's maybe had a little more advantage and he's using that, he's leveraging that to help someone who's maybe slightly less advantaged. If you want to get involved formally, contact us. There's Strengthening Families, there's Finishing Strong, which is also like a more formal tutoring program. You can give to the COVID Relief Fund. And these are just some, some formal ways, but I also want to encourage those of you that are parents to teach and model grace and humility to your children. We've, we've tried from the youngest age ages to take our kids into townships and into environments to, to help them see and value uh, people that, that are living in very different circumstances and to, and to constantly remind them that, that, that we are fortunate. I don't even know what language to use to describe what we are, but, but that we have an advantage, that we are, I'm nervous to say blessed as though someone else isn't, but I want them to appreciate, again, not to feel guilty, but to be grateful. And so it's not just talking. I think it's also modeling. Your, your children will hear what you say, but they're going to see the heart that comes across when you are dealing with people that you disagree with and people that are different to you. I'm so grateful for my parents. I'm, I'm so grateful, especially in my mom's case, where she was the victim, in a sense, of prejudice. Her, when her and my father were looking to get married, she was Afrikaans. My dad was English. Her father made it very clear that if she married an Englishman, he would disown her. For the rest of his life, she married my dad. Her dad disowned her till the day he died. She, she experienced that kind of rejection, that kind of conditional, transactional love. And, and I've got to say that she, she, instead of getting bitter and angry and ugly, she, she allowed God to heal her. And she, all my life, has been the complete opposite. The complete opposite to where she's been nothing but gracious, nothing but unconditional. And she has modeled grace and mercy to me. In conclusion, I want to encourage you towards what I would call a rule of life. I only came across this just recently, but, but Martin Luther King Jr. in 1963, so nearly 60 years ago, during the uh, protests in Birmingham, Alabama, wrote something called the Ten Commandments, or has come, at least come to be known as, as Dr. King's Ten Commandments. And it's almost like a rule of life where where, where he's saying, if you're going to be a part of this, if you're going to be a part of our protest, well, then, then we want you to commit to these 10 things. I'm thinking, how, how, how did this man have this insight and this grace 60 years ago? Uh, and I love that people had to agree to these habits, to these rules, as it were, to be a part of, of trying to, to turn the situation around in a healthy, life-giving way. Just a couple of examples. Number one is to meditate daily on the teachings and life of Jesus. If you want to love God and love people, well, I agree with Dr. King. Meditate daily on the teachings and life of Jesus. I love number three where it says, walk and talk in the manner of love, for God is love. I love how in number six he says, observe with both friend and foe the ordinary rules of courtesy. That's a dramatic rule of life. Number eight, it says, refrain from violence of fist, tongue, or heart. 
There's a lot of violence going on that I don't think is justifiable at the moment in the protests. I think peaceful protesting, I think standing up, I, th I think that's important. Violence and killing other people and hurting other people, I don't think that, that, that that's the solution. But that's, that's one small part of it. I think that there's the most incredible violence of tongue that is taking place. We've got more access to, to spew our venom around the world than ever before. And number nine, strive to be in good spiritual and bodily health. I love it. I just love the insight. He was 34 years old, by the way, when he wrote this. He was 35 when he won the Nobel Peace Prize. He was 39 when he was killed. I think it's impressive that a man living in those circumstances had such a determination. He, he was so aware that, that in, fact, in fact, I think number one, Sorry, number two, he says, remember always that the nonviolent movement in Birmingham seeks justice and reconciliation, not victory. That blows my mind, that he, that he would see that as a bigger win than just getting certain policies changed over. Please understand that God's heart is for all people. One day, People from every tribe, every tongue, every nation is going to celebrate together in eternity. And I want to be a part of that, and I want you to be a part of that. And I think that the only way for us to do that is to keep loving God and asking Him to help us love our neighbor who is different to us as ourselves. Because of the, the nature of this topic, I don't want you just to rush off to your next meal or your next appointment. I'm asking you to hang around for a few minutes. I'm asking you to reflect. As, as we play this following song, please can I ask you to ask God. As David mentioned in Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24, to search me and to know my heart, to test me and to know my anxious thoughts, to point out anything in me that offends you, and to lead me on the path of everlasting life. Please would you ask God to show you anything that he wants to show you as you enjoy this song, and then we're gonna wrap up.
God, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you have forgiven me even though I didn't deserve anything. Thank you that you wash me clean and that you give me a new life. Please would you help me to follow Jesus. And please would you help me to love others in the way that you love me. And Father, for everybody else watching this today, I do pray for us as a church. I pray for us as, as a group of viewers. Lord, would you give us your heart. Help us to see people the way you see them. Help us to love people the way that you love them. Help us to see wherever you're wanting to change our thinking, change our behavior, change our budgeting, change how we use our gifts. Lord, that we would steward these things well. Lord, help us to have life-giving, helpful, constructive conversations. Help us to know when to be quiet and when to listen. But God, I pray that we would be the church of Jesus Christ. All generations, all races, all nationalities. Lord, that we would genuinely be united and represent you well. Please, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.